This episode is sponsored by State Farm. You a small business owner looking for insurance that fits your needs and budget? Well, look no further than State Farm. State Farm agents are not just insurance providers. They're also small business owners who live and work right here in your community. They understand the unique challenges of running and protecting a small business. When it comes to small business insurance, State Farm knows what it takes. Create a plan that fits your needs and your budget. State Farm agents are ready to help you choose personalized policies that truly understand your business. Ensure your small business with a fellow small business owner. Talk to a State Farm agent today and get started on personalized small business insurance that fits your needs. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Talk to your local agent today. Hey, I'm Rob Berger. When I'm not rolling in the dough, that's right, I'm stacking Benjamins. Live from Joe's mom's basement, it's the Stacking Benjamin Show. I'm Joe's mom's neighbor, Doug, and today we're huddled around the card table with you to tackle some of the money issues you've been struggling with. We'll talk estate planning, how to plan for a baby's arrival, problems with a financial advisor, and more. But first, in our headline segment, have you ever wondered what it'd be like to dump the job and just head out on an adventure? Well, Joe Jimenez is doing just that, spending the summer walking the Continental Divide Trail. Really, Joe, is that responsible at a time when we need to bring this country together? Well, I'll be very interested to hear what he has to say. And sure, we'll still throw out the Haven Lifeline to a lucky listener and dazzle you with my trivia so don't you worry and now two guys who are worried that it's only wednesday and the beers are more than half gone it's joe and oh j-j-j-j-j-g. i have this feeling the guy across the table from me is starting early why do i have to be the raging alcoholic of the group i i didn't say you were i'm just saying it probably isn't me so if there's only two of us you don't have to be a math major to know. So it must be me. Yes. Welcome to Ghost Drinking Our Brew Podcast. I'm Joe Salci. Hi, Average Joe Money on Twitter. Happy Wednesday, OG. All the Mick Ultras that I drink, you know, they you, you really can put down about a dozen of those. <laughs> Just to make up for all those carbs you aren't getting. Mm-hmm, that's right. Yeah, get your get your whole carb loading on. <laughs> In case I got to run a marathon. Yeah. <laughs> Training for a marathon. I'm carb loading. You know what I like though, before and after the marathon, is that when I run, I run so I can look good. But then I actually got to go dress the part to look good. I'm wearing right now my proper cloth shirt. Thanks to Proper Cloth for supporting Stacky Benjamins. Proper Cloth makes it unbelievably easy for men to buy dress shirts. That fit perfectly without setting foot in a store or paying a fortune. Get $20 off your first custom shirt at propercloth.com slash SB. I've got some sweet dress shirts from them, but I also have casual shirts. Check this one out, man. So soft and buttery. Loving my proper cloth shirts. All right, here's what else I'm loving. We got a great show today. Love these letters episodes. They're always some of our favorites. And Joe Jimenez, we're going to call on my dad shortwave. So let's get this party started. Hello, darlings. And now it's time for your favorite part of the show, our stacking Benjamin's headlines. In our first headline, here's a cautionary tale, OG. 
This comes to us from Investment News, written by Bruce Kelly. Sales of unregistered securities are a growing problem that's harming investors and the industry. The practice is dangerous and giving the industry a black eye. So what can financial advisors do to stop it? The piece asked. Stop doing it. To an investor, Castleberry Financial Services Group promised of up to a 12.2% annual yield on the alternative investment fund it was selling might have seemed awfully tempting. So might the assurance that your principal will be insured and bonded by well-known insurance companies, CNA Financial Corps and Chubb Group. In promotional materials, 12.2% guaranteed. Castleberry claimed to have invested almost $800 million in local South Florida companies and have a portfolio of real estate holdings that was generating $2.8 million in rental income annually. But shocking, hashtag shock, in late February, the Securities and Exchange Commission went into court to shut the company down, claiming it was all a fraud, including the involvement of CNA and Chubb. Before the SEC acted, though, it said that Castleberry had managed to raise $3.6 million from investors, some of which was used to pay the personal expenses of its principals, its owners. Other funds were transferred to family members or other businesses the principals controlled, according to the SEC. By all indications, the marketplace for all types of private unregistered securities, including private placements sold to wealthy investors and institutions, is thriving. But what's growing alongside this legitimate, if risky, market is the seedy side of the financial advice industry. Investment funds promising above-market returns that employ networks of brokers, former brokers, insurance agents, and others lurking on the fringes of the industry to sell their investments are taking advantage of unsuspecting investors. I see this all around us, OG, even with some of the pitches that we get from people, usually, by the way, in the real estate industry, some eye-popping returns, or maybe just on the fringe of eye-popping, right? Maybe just a little too good to be true, but close enough that you think maybe these people have a secret sauce. I'm surprised that they shut this down at $3.6 million. That's really hardly anything for the SEC to get involved in. I just wonder if somebody tipped them off or something, and I'm happy they did. I mean, ultimately, just like anything, if it sounds too good to be true, it probably is. And there are definitely investments out there where people have generated large returns. But the definition of alternative investment means that it's something different than a regular stock investment. So it's going to perform differently than a stock investment. It has to. So an alternative investment might be owning a whole bunch of land that they're going to forest for timber. That might be an alternative investment. That has nothing to do with buying small businesses or distressed debt. That's all normal stuff. That is the market. Alternative markets are things that are not that. So if you're finding or seeing pitches for, quote, alternative investments that are offering stock market returns without stock market risk, that just simply doesn't exist in the real world. Yes, no it, just, thing. It, it just doesn't exist because... If you believe that there's such a thing as efficient markets, we have all of this data around us. We have all these websites and, 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 and blogs and, and message boards and podcasts and the internet and TV, all these things. If there was a place that produced 
consistently returns that had superior risk return profiles, everyone would know about it already. Everyone would know about it already by the time it got to you. So if you believe that the the whole summation of, quote, the market is already known and priced into securities immediately, then it also is priced into all this other stuff immediately. And if there was a thing out there that was so fantastic, it would be the only thing that anybody would invest in. The proliferation, the piece says, of potentially fraudulent schemes comes at a time when the sale of legitimate private securities, which are exempt from having to be registered if they meet certain SEC guidelines, is taken off. While the annual amount of public stock offerings has remained relatively steady over the past decade, the sale of these new private stock offerings have soared. The most popular of these, known as Regulation D offerings, have more than doubled from 18295 in 2009 to 37785 in 2017. Those deals, along with other types of private offerings, raised a total of $3 trillion in 2017. Brokers and advisors can sell these private unregistered shares to only the wealthiest clients. This is when we start talking again, and this has come up a few times the last few weeks, OG. This is where that accredited investor rule comes in. Investors need a net worth of a million or an annual individual income of $200,000 to buy in. But the public disclosure is negligible, making the securities opaque, some sources said, and that is hazardous. It's funny. I think that there's a pretty profound difference between somebody whose investment net worth is a million dollars and somebody whose income is 200,000. That's a, that's a really big difference. You can have a $200,000 income and not have any other assets. Yeah. And and all of a sudden you're getting into this, and you're uh, qualified, this, so this investment type. And there are some of these, I mean, we've had some of these people on the Friday FinTech show before, I mean, I'm I'm thinking about uh, uh, advertisers we've worked with. Uh, Masterworks, as an example, is one where you're investing in art. We're talking to the guys from Acre Trader here, investing in farmland. All of these these investments that we've even done due diligence on still have significant downside potential. Imagine if you've got two hundred thousand dollars and you're buying into a painting that you can only sell later at auction. Who knows what that auction price is going to be? Yeah. There are very few areas in your investing life where stuff like this makes sense. It's so few and far between. And it's such an infinitesimal percentage of your portfolio where it would make sense anyway, because the proponents for private equity or private placement type investments will say, oh, but it's an asymmetric risk return potential. That's why we would do that. And I agree with that. If it's an asymmetric risk reward, it also needs to be an asymmetric overall percentage of your portfolio. If you're expecting that this thing will either triple or go to zero, you shouldn't put any more than a tiny fraction of your portfolio because you have to do so many of those to offset the fact that most of them will go to zero. You know what I mean? Like you look at look at how yeah, but I don't think- angel investors invest money or look how uh, VC companies do that. They're, they take a whole bunch of flyers on thousands of companies to get one or two that work out. And these types of deals like private placements and private equity in general are just like that, in my experience. Yeah, but I don't think so. I don't think the last two companies that I mentioned are like that at all or anything like that. I mean, when we take a look as an example at art, 
Regulation D has changed the game in the art community. And the reason for that is historically, the reason why I would say don't go buy art, don't buy art is because of the fact that you had to put so much capital into one painting into one thing. So it's this incredibly illiquid position and you have to put a lot of money toward it. But now with regulation D, the fact that you can buy fractional shares of art, you don't have to take a big flyer. And if we look at the past returns on the greatest artist in the world and being able to own that, I mean, we even talked to art about this, not just masterworks, art It's very close to the same concept. These ideas are now allowing you to get into these asset classes that historically have not been asymmetrical. They've just been opaque because of the fact that you had to devote so much cash to a piece of art that only the wealthiest among us were able to get in on it. Farmland, another example, where because to to go buy a huge field and then lease it to a farmer meant a ton of money. Regulation D now means that you can put you can buy one one thousandth of that piece of of land. And now you're getting into this asset class you couldn't get into before. Both of those asset classes still, though, have problems with getting your money out, which is where I agree. So I think Reg D has changed the game in that way where it's not the asymmetrical thing. These guys aren't offering these monster returns. It's just instead of having to put crap loads of money toward that investment, now people that don't want to devote a ton of money to it can get in there. Well, then I would submit, why even bother with it? If it's not going to produce a return, I was I thought about this in the context of small businesses. I remember early in my career, one of the vice president people in our group said in a meeting, if your business isn't growing at 15 or 20% a year, then you should stop investing in your business and invest somewhere else because there's other places that get 10 or 12% a year. And it's a lot less risky than this in really teeny tiny micro cap business. And so if I'm going to go buy a fractional share of a Van Gogh, I better get freaking 20%. I need to. Otherwise, why in the hell would I put any money there when I can just go buy a small cap value fund and it's I can trade it tomorrow. I can put the money in my bank account the next day. And I know within reason that a lot of those companies are going to be around or at least that fund's going to be around. And I've got 100 years worth of data in terms of uh, return potential. I love the idea of buying what you know. And I also think that you get much more interested in investing if you're buying stuff that you're interested in. Me personally, I love investing in art. I think investing in art for my portfolio keeps me excited about actually what I'm doing. And investing in farmland, I, I remember working with clients when I was a financial planner if you're somebody who lives in the middle of Manhattan and and then you don't care at all about farms or how farms work or anything, no, no, don't do that. But man, with a farming community all around me growing up, I totally get that. I get where those people are coming from. I feel like I've got a nice understanding on how that works. And so to be able to get into that asset class and to be able to do that, sure, not with a ton of my portfolio, but why wouldn't I? I don't know why I wouldn't. Or I can buy some faceless fund that doesn't, and don't get me wrong, you don't need to be all emotional about your investments, but if something gets you excited to invest and you've done your due diligence on it, you know what the downside is, do it, man. Do it. If it meets your goal, go do it. I have a feeling that we could just go back and forth like this for the next hour and a half. I think like, we no, I'm right. 
let me tell you emphatically why. I don't think and that... you're like, no, let me show you why. <laughs> I feel like I might be correct. I don't think it's a matter of right or wrong, but I like people hearing both sides of that because I have a feeling our audience can come down on either side of that. And I'm, and I'm sure people emphatically do. Well, we saw... Sure that we know where the vast majority of people fall. Yeah, probably on my side. When, <laughs> when you... He says sarcastically. <laughs> I wasn't being sarcastic. I was not at all. He says foolishly. <laughs> uh, but just to bring this back around, because of the fact that Regulation D has has done this for what what I think are some very legitimate reasons, and you're seeing the number of offerings go up because of that, you're also seeing these scammers latch onto it, OG, which means if you're going to go into those industries, I think you really need to do do your due diligence. How's that for bringing it back? Nice downshift into neutral. Appreciate it. And in our second headline, we always talk on the show that it's not about the money, right? Money's just a means to an end. It's about doing what you really want to do. And a friend of ours is out doing something that I've always thought was really cool. I thought we'd follow him all summer long. And our good friend, Joe Jimenez, we have on my dad shortwave. Dude, where are you right now? I am in the beautiful city of Silver City, New Mexico. I started from the border of Mexico and I've walked 160 miles to get here. And you've been walking now for two weeks? Just under that. Uh, it's been about eight days. Uh, how far, Joe, are you going to walk? <laughs> I'm going to walk around 3,000 miles from Mexico to Canada on the Continental Divide Trail. That is that is so amazing. Now, just a couple things <laughs> about you that people don't know. Uh, so I want to introduce you to our audience. First of all, you are married, correct? As far as I'm, I, I know, <laughs> right? I'm still married, yes. And then number two, <laughs> uh, what do you do for a living? What's your job? Well, currently I'm unemployed, so I'm a 100% dirtbag right now, but I used to be in the engineering field. I, I worked in environmental due diligence. I got my background uh, in civil engineering, civil and construction, so I did that for roughly seven years. But unfortunately, to do this big trip, I had to stop my employment, so uh, you know, that's uh, so currently I'm unemployed, but I, yeah, I, my background's in engineering. That's wild. Did, did you quit your job specifically to do this? Yes, sir. <laughs> I'm an idiot. <laughs> wow. Well, I don't know. I, I mean, and, and Joe, one more thing. How old are you? I am 31. Turn 31 this January. Well, let's talk about setting this up. So you're walking the entire Continental Divide Trail, which is incredible. You're going over 3,000 miles. How did this dream begin? Tell me where the idea came from. Gosh, man. It, uh, try to keep it brief here, but uh, in two, I graduated in 2011. It was right at the end of the recession, as you know, and I could not get a job. So I jumped on the Appalachian Trail and I actually hiked that in 2012. And that was 2,200 miles. Over there, my life changed completely. And on the trail is when I learned about finances, what really mattered, what was important. And I knew that I just didn't want to work a job for 45 years that I was not necessarily completely excited about. So after I got off the Appalachian Trail, my wife and I continued to just work hard. We lived off one income. Fast forward seven years later, I mean, it's just crazy. I would never believe that I would be on this trail right now. Everything just kind of fast forward. It just happened so fast. Now I'm out here and, and I couldn't be happier to be out here. If you have even the slightest inkling to do something like this, a long hike of experience like this, it is so worth it. The money, I mean, I'm, I'm guessing your listeners already have their finances in pretty, you know, they're, they're at least thinking about finances, right? So 
probably have them in somewhat of good order. So um, I think if they have the time to carve out a couple of months to do something like this, they should definitely do it. And that's uh, why I'm out here. A lot of people wondering right now is, as they're listening, how does your wife feel about you spending the summer away? Well, they'll have to tune into my podcast that I'm recording. I actually recorded an episode with her and I answered just that. So I, I interviewed her. I'm, I'm actually recording a podcast while I'm out here. And uh, you know what? I, I tell people all the time, man, I'm so fortunate, Joe. I, I say I found a unicorn. She's so supportive. She's actually sent me packages, care packages out here with uh, food. And she's just, I, I call her every time I get into town. She's so encouraging. And I, I think it really is important to have someone like that back at home. Because, you know, sometimes there are a lot of downtimes, a lot of times where I just don't feel like going on and walking 30 miles. And she's there just to, you know, encourage me and, and remind me why I'm out here. So she, I mean, you know, you could ask her, but I, I think she's, she's really happy for me to be doing what I love. And she's super supportive. That's incredible. Now, doing something like this, though, takes quite a bit of planning. Tell me about planning to hike 3,000 miles. What did you do to start? <laughs> Man, you probably disappointed to hear that I just figured out that I was going to do this in January. So the continental divide is a little bit more remote and a little bit more obscure than the other. There's, there's three long trails in, in the U.S., the Pacific Crest Trail, the Continental Divide Trail, and the Appalachian Trail. And the other two are actually, there's a lot less planning involved because you can figure it out along the way. But the Continental Divide being more remote and there's a lot less towns, you know, there's a lot more planning involved. So there's some really good resources that I looked up. Uh, one, uh, there's a blog called Halfway Anywhere, and they have a lot of good surveys and um, basically a lot of they survey a lot of the, the former through hikers. And basically, the biggest thing I had to plan was there's some towns that you get to, and there's nowhere to get food. I mean, basically, you got to resupply out of a little tiny gas station convenience store. So the biggest thing is finding out which towns those are and um, preemptively sending a package there before I arrive, so I could have good, healthy non-chocolate bars and chips <laughs> and ramen meals uh, because I, I like to try to eat somewhat healthy while I'm out here. So that's the biggest thing I would say as far as planning goes. Wow. And how long is it going to take you to finish? Well, I'm a pretty fast hiker. Um, so I, I plan about four and a half months and that's averaging roughly 20, 25 miles a day ish. Now, planning your money to be able to do this, obviously, you had to be in a financial position that you could quit your job. What did you do? Did you build up your cash reserve? You have your debt paid off. Tell me about that. Sure, man. Uh, we're very debt averse. So uh, my wife and I are completely debt free. We, we don't have credit card debt, no mortgage, no car payment. So that, I think, gave us a really good leg up. We have no debt. And then while on the trail, honestly, it's very, it's it's not too expensive, you know, so I don't have an expensive apartment that I'm paying for. I'm not paying for any gas because I'm just walking. The most expensive thing is food when I get into town and the occasional hotel or, you know, B&B or hostel um, and then shoe replacements. <laughs> so <laughs> we're debt free. We saved up. We've roughly lived off of one income for the last seven years. And we got, we got some cash saved up, but to do that, we just lived very frugally and lived in a fifth wheel for the last six years. And, you know, we just, we do all the, uh, the big three, you know, the eat at home, watch our transportation costs and watch our housing costs. And we put ourselves in a position to be able to do this. And that's why, you know, I'd like to encourage others that it's pretty attainable. If you just do a few things, right. You know, you don't have to do anything too crazily exotic, just do a few of the big things, right. And that's what we've done. That's so cool. I know a lot of people fear going out and getting what they want. And I love your point of view that it's easier than you think. 
you've been nice enough to let us catch up with you every couple of weeks throughout the summer. So thanks for doing that. But if people want sure. to follow you on the podcast, tell everybody about the podcast and where they can get it. Yeah. So it's called taking the alternate and it, we're available on Stitcher, Apple iTunes or whatever they call it, <laughs> Apple podcast. And also you could just listen on the website at www.takingthealternate.com. And basically if you're somewhat into finance and you're somewhat into crazy trips like hiking across the country, then I think this podcast would be for you. The learning curve for me, Joe, I'm not as uh, established as you and I uh, have, uh, I think, a total of four listeners. So that's like, what, um, three less than you. So, but uh, yeah, you can find me there. I was going to say with uh, both of our listeners may tune in, I'm sure. <laughs> right, right. All right, yeah, Joe. We can do big things. <laughs> well, and by the way, uh, we'll link to the podcast on the show notes page at stackybenjamins.com. Good luck the next couple of weeks. Uh, I don't know what hikers say. Hike safe, uh, hike straight. I don't know. Hope for good weather. <laughs> and we'll talk to you in a couple uh, weeks. You know, yeah, I probably shouldn't say what the hikers say on here. Right. <laughs> Thanks to Joe for spending the summer with us. Isn't that going to be fun following him across the United States? I've always I wanted to do that. I feel man. like his legs are going to hurt. <laughs> I think, I think they, they very well might. I was just talking to my oldest about this, the Appalachian Trail and how you have to start it in March and you have to time out these package deliveries on the path and stuff. And he said, wait a second, you can just like walk the entire United States. I said, yeah. He said, huh, that might be kind of fun. I said, yeah, yeah, might be. I love how the Appalachian Trail was Joe's warm up. Like that's, oh yeah, 2000 miles. Yeah, it was fine. Let's go through. Yeah. All stretched out. You guys ready to go? <laughs> no. Number two. And then I wonder if he's going to do, I didn't ask him. Maybe when we talked to him in a couple of weeks. Yeah, we talked to him in a couple of weeks. We'll ask if he's going to peel that one off because then he'll have all three. He'll do the the triumvirate. That'll be great. So thanks to Joe. Uh, we'll check in with him again in a couple of weeks. I love this idea of life as an adventure, not waiting for tomorrow to do what you want, making it so that your money helps you do what you want earlier. I think that's one lesson. Lesson number two is uh, generally when Joe and OG have a discussion on air there where we come down other sides. I'm probably right. In most of the times, I would disagree with you. So, And okay. I'm right again. One of us is correct and one of us thinks that he's correct. It's that time. We've got a stack of your letters and we're going to, to go through these. Thank you so much for writing to us, by the way. It means... A lot. And uh, let's kick off with this one. This comes to us from Al. Al says, thanks for your podcast. I'm sending an email rather than a voicemail because I have too many t-shirts. My wife is in the final four to eight months of her life as she battles metastatic cancer. Man. Holy shnikes. Yeah. Uh, we have our taxable assets not held jointly, but in separate accounts, partly so we could set up transfer on death directions independently. She has her taxable assets going to our three children and looking over each of our assets. I did some shuffling of the holdings, maintaining some value so that assets with the greatest capital gains were moved to her name in order to have the children's benefit from the step up and basis. And that was all done with her permission. This seemed to make sense to me. Is there any downside to this? Wow. Al, uh, thanks for the letter and what a, tough time uh let's explain that first what what he did og when somebody passes away 
this idea of step up in basis, what does that mean? Under normal circumstances, when you buy an asset, a house or stock or a business or rental property or whatever, you have your cost basis. You have your amount of money that you contributed to that initial investment. And over time, if you've done it right, that position grows in value. So you bought $10,000 worth of Apple stock and now it's worth $50,000. Well, we all know when we sell that $50,000 for uh, an expense like college tuition or something like that, then we're going to pay taxes on the gain, capital gains tax. Uh, There's some rules around real estate and things like that, that you can shuffle away that capital gains tax, depending on how long you've lived in the home or if you're kind of rolling it into, rolling it into another property and that sort of thing to kind of, to kind of ease that burden. But if you're thinking like a regular stock account, grandpa bought GE in 1965 for five grand and now it's worth 500,000. If he sells it all today, he's going to pay taxes. The IRS does allow at the date of death for somebody who owns capital assets for that cost basis to be reset. And that reset happens just as the value on the date of their passing to the beneficiary. So uh, you buy your Apple stock at $10,000 and it's worth $50,000. You pass away. Now the cost basis for your heirs or your beneficiaries is now the 50000 number. So in theory, they could sell that the same day and pay zero taxes. They get a reset. So we call that a step up in basis. So you're kind of think about it. You're stepping up to the newer level in your cost basis. And it helps kind of the next generation, so to speak, or the heirs of that account not have to pay uh, a sizable amount of taxes on, on sale. I don't see why this would be a bad idea, what Al was talking about here. The first thing I thought of when I heard kids was, I think, young children. I would never in a million years leave any money to anybody under the age of 18 if I could avoid it. You end up having to get the court involved in terms of the ownership and management of those assets. And uh, as you can imagine, a public entity like a public guardian ad litem or, or a public lawyer, so to speak, the court system is not going to generally want to take too much risk when it comes to their management of your assets. So you quite often find that it'd be very conservative in terms of its asset allocation. And then the other downside of giving money to somebody before they're 18 is that once they turn 18, it legally all becomes theirs. So I don't know about you, but I kind of did some foolish things with money when I was 18. And oh, 20 not and me. 22. I, I was, I was, I was. You were a saint. 25, 31, 49. No, I'm not 49 yet. But, you know, so we can all look back in our lives and go, gosh, that was that was really dumb. And so if the kids are younger, I would make sure that you meet with an estate planning attorney and kind of spell out in a perfect world. Here's how I would want money to be distributed. I can just tell you how we've done it because we have young children and Al might be how may be calling his children children and you know they might be 52 years old you know so yeah. that's a whole different thing but how we have it in our household is we have a person who's in charge of the money so we call that the trustee so all the money if something happens to me or to Mrs. OG or god forbid happens simultaneously all all the money goes into a trust for the benefit of my kids and we have somebody who's in charge of the money and that person is uh, responsible for fulfilling what we wrote out. And here's some of the highlights of the things that we wrote out. First, we want to make sure that the kids are taken care of in any way they need for anything health-related, education-related, normal 
clothing, wear and tear, normal vacations, that sort of stuff. And we give the trustee very wide discretion to discern uh, what that means. You know, if trustee feels like a small vacation is in order, that counts. If the trustee feels like the kids need to go shopping for new clothes, so be it. Kids get into Harvard, awesome. You know, so it's set up to take care of that almost automatically. But then we also set aside certain time frames in which the children, as they get older, begin to have some control over portions of the trust on their own. And so we set this up at age 25. They get a small portion that they get to control on their own. We don't mandate any distributions. I think that's a really big error. You go, well, at 25, my kids get a third of the portfolio. Oh, boy, what happens if that's a really bad time to get a big check for $300,000 or something. You know what I mean? So we just say, you can be in charge of a portion of the portfolio at 25. You can be in charge of a portion of the trust at 30 and you can be in charge of a portion of the trust when you're 35. So we've spread it out intentionally because with the value of the business and the value of our investments and life insurance, it's a whole bunch of money. And I wouldn't want to dump all of that on a 17 year old or in my case, a 12 year old just not not realistic. So we've sat down and kind of thought through the different errors that we've made and then also thought through what can we do without people talk about this like well I don't want I don't want to have rules from the grave or whatever they'll say I don't want to control the money I'll be gone what do I care. And that's true, but I also don't want to empower them to make terrible decisions if I don't have to. If I had $250,000 when I was 18 years old, I would not have $250,000 today. I might have $250,000 worth of stuff in 1996 money. I was, was going to say now depreciated. <laughs> now depreciated down to like 18 bucks. Because there's no way yeah. you were buying an investment asset that would appreciate. No, there are some really cool stereos, I think, back yes. in 96. Yes. You and know, a whole lot those, of those CDs, the CD things in your car that like auto, that made it so it didn't skip when it hit the bumps. You know, that was a really cool thing. And think about that. Think about how many empties there'd be in the bins. <laughs> Yeah. So that's kind of my advice on the estate planning side is work with an estate planning attorney. The nice thing about working with a with an attorney is that you can kind of word wordsmith what you want to have happen and they can turn that into legalese. And they can say, "Well, yeah, we can do that." Or, "No, we can't." You know, we can't we can't control that in that regard or something. But here's an idea. The other thing that I would advise is and everybody should do this, not just Al, but everybody should, especially if you're listening to this, you might as well do it. You got to check your beneficiary designations. Companies lose that stuff. You change brokerage houses from Fidelity to Vanguard and you forget to check the box or you've got an old 401k that you haven't looked at in 22 years. I can I can tell you, Joe, you've had this happen. You go through the account statements with the client and you go, who's Julie? <laughs> Client's like, what's that? Like, who's Julie? Julie? Julie who? Julie Smith. Yeah. Who's Julie Smith, Bill? It's like, oh yeah, that was my ex-wife. Yeah, and actually, twenty-five years. Actually, the spouse wouldn't say who's Julie Smith. The spouse knows damn well who Julie Smith is. (laughs) Sure, absolutely. Yeah, it's very accusatory. And even as not even Julie Smith, not as not as nefarious as that. What if it's still listed as mom and dad? What if it's listed as your brother and sister? A lot of times, you kind of get this stuff started when you're 20 years old. You're not married, you don't have a family. You're like, well, I should just give to mom, or I should give to my little sister. And you just never and, change it. And you just never change it. So it's and, a good habit just to double check that. 
And that's another point, too, is that, remember, beneficiaries on accounts supersede estate planning documents that you do. I've seen people set up beautiful estate planning documents, and they never make sure that their beneficiaries on their IRAs, on their 401ks, that those are congruent with the estate planning work they did. Yeah. Yeah. We call it funding the trust. It sounds like you have to put money in it. It's not that. It's it's directing assets to the estate plan. You have to do that the right way. The right way is not to say, pay everything to my estate plan. That's not right either. So again, a good attorney will help you walk through all this stuff if you have questions on it. But it's a good habit just every so often to double check it anyway, because even through no fault of your own, stuff gets lost, missed, thrown away, right. deleted, whatever. Thanks, Al, for your letter. Our next note comes to us from Daniel. Daniel writes, I'm a 25-year-old with a full-time job making roughly $80,000 before taxes. I've been very good about saving for the future and have a much larger amount saved than many of my peers, I believe. I've maxed out my 401k, roughly $38,000 saved for the last two years, along with my Roth IRA for the last four, roughly $27,000 saved, and have a brokerage account with about $30,000 invested in it. I'm looking to buy my first house. So he's 25 years old, 38,000 is 401k, 27,000 Ross and 30,000 a brokerage account. Okay. Blue ribbon for Kyle. $95,000 saved at 25 on an $80,000 salary. Attaboy. Rocking. However, the city I live in is a very high cost of living. So I'm looking at a condo or townhouse for roughly 250,000. I have about 20,000 saved between other accounts to put as a down payment. I'm also hoping to rent out the second bedroom to help pay for the mortgage and help accelerate the payments, have no other debt or loans. I'm wondering what you think I should do with my retirement accounts. Should I continue maxing them out? Should I stop contributing, put all my money toward my mortgage to begin paying down the principal to save money on the interest? My employer is a 6% match for the 401k. Any help or suggestions? Appreciate a big fan of the show. I definitely have some thoughts on this, Daniel, but uh, OG... My major thought is why would you, you're, you're winning the race by two laps. Why would you want to let off the gas? Yeah. I Like just keep, keep doing it. The time to let off the gas is when you go, so I've got four and a half million in my brokerage account and I'm 47 and I think I could probably kind of enjoy some of this now. What do you think? It's not, I've got 38,000 in my, or 38,000 in my 401k. I think I'm, think I'm set up like keep hammering, dude. Not to mention the whole interest rate arbitrage deal, but you've got a good system. You know, this, we, we talk a lot about setting yourself up to autopilot and just make it happen. And so you've got this thing set up on your max, not your 401k, your max, not your Roth. Your income's only going to increase presumably over the years. If you, so, want, if you want to pay off that mortgage early, I love the idea of having a roommate. I think that's fantastic. You mm-hmm. read Scott Trench's book, Set for Life, one of my favorite books, especially for people just starting out. He talks about that. Have somebody else cover your mortgage. Fantastic. You own a property, somebody else paying the payment. But if you want to pay it down even quicker, don't put the money in the mortgage. Put it in an S&P 500 fund. Over long periods of time, the S&P 500 historically has beaten the pants off of your mortgage. So put the money there. And what's cool is for clients of mine back when I was a financial planner who did that, when the amount equaled the amount they owed on the mortgage, guess how many people actually paid off the mortgage? Zero. Some people had the, that fund start making the payment, so they just mm-hmm. didn't have to worry about the payment anymore. But nobody paid it off because it's really all about the feeling of I can pay it off whenever I want. And once you realize that you're accelerating your net worth faster 
than you would putting it toward the mortgage. You generally leave it in the in the faster growing spot. Now, this is great advice for Daniel because Daniel's already demonstrated to us that he can save bunches of money and that that excites him. If you're somebody who can't save money, I wouldn't do this S&P 500 thing. I would put it in toward the mortgage because you know what? Then it's it's a pain in the butt to take out another loan to get that money back. So it all depends on you and your risk tolerance and who you are. But based on who Daniel, just a little bit, three paragraphs of who Daniel says he is, I think if he wants to play that game, let's let's play it all the way. The other thing that I would think to add would be to create the system for how you want to do it moving forward. So for example, I was just talking to somebody a little while ago about how I have chosen to set up the profits from our rental property. Only because I know, again, you're talking about knowing yourself. I know myself. If that just gets folded into the checking account, it'll just kind of sort of evaporate. You know, like we'll just use it for whatever, not intentionally. And I'm looking at this saying, my goodness, I have $1,500 a month that's free and clear from this rental property. I should be intentional about like where that $1,500 goes. As my wife and I have set it up, we've decided that for every dollar we make above our baseline kind of budget, we want to take half of that and direct it toward debt pay down and half of it toward investing. So you might also look at that and say, if everything's covered now and then you make more money, what do you do with that extra money? Maybe you say, well, I've got this goal of paying down my house or I've got this goal of accumulating money. Maybe you want to put it all in the mortgage accumulation pay down fund, or maybe you want to split it 50, 50 or whatever, but just have that system set up so that it's, you take that decision out of trying to make the decision every time, you know, cause, cause over the next 10 years, your pay is going to increase. You're going to get bonuses. You're going to get stock options. Those things are going to happen frequently. And if every time you go, gosh, what should I do with this 12,000? Oh, I just got a raise. What should I do with that 8,000? Well, now I got a $10,000 grant for my RSUs. Now what should I do with that? ten? Just just set it up and then d- don't ever think of it again. Take this decision fatigue out of it. But I like the S&P 500 mortgage pay down fund. Yeah. I got to say, Daniel, you're doing a ton of stuff, right? There is one part of your note that is a little bit of a red flag for me. And I don't know if you want to weigh in on this too, OG, but in his second sentence, he says, I've been very good about saving for the future. I love that part. If he'd stopped there, I would have been... Yes. Fantastic. That's good. But the second half of that sentence and have a much larger amount saved than many of my peers, I believe that second half of the sentence bothers me because when I was a financial planner, that was a question. So many people, how am I doing versus everybody else? And it ain't about anybody else. It's about you versus your goal. That's it. It's you and your goal. Forget about everybody else. We have a friend, you and I have a mutual friend that we talked about yesterday. You and I had the long discussion about this guy. He has so many cool little toys. He's accumulated so much cash and he is obsessed with him versus everybody else. To the point that whenever you see him, he, he immediately says, well, I got this car. Well, I got this thing. Well, I got this. And talking to our friends AKA I talked to you. I talked to another mutual friend of ours. None of us can stand the guy anymore. We used to love him. We thought he was fantastic. And it's not that I'm not happy for him. I am, but it ain't about me. 
He's not competing with me to see who gets the most cars. He gets a cool car. I get a cool car. Great. We both got cool cars. It ain't about other people. Uh, that part, that part, a little bit at 25, if you can turn that down and, ins- yeah. and, and instead, and instead just say, you know what? I'm reaching my goal. Or maybe he's not yeah. reaching his goal. I mean, maybe you're doing better than your peers, but you're nowhere near your goal. I don't know what your goal is, but that's what I think Daniel really need to be worried about. Okay. I have nothing to add. Next, next up is, is Lisa. Lisa says, hi, Joe and OG. My husband and I are both contributing 15% to our respective 401ks. Mine gets matched at 6%, but my husband is no company match. We were told by a financial advisor my husband shouldn't contribute to his 401k because he gets no match, and I should only contribute 6% to get my match. Instead, we were told to open a personal investment account with either a robo-advisor or to use a target date fund account at Fidelity, Vanguard, or the like, and put our money there. I'm not sure we agree with the strategy and wanted to get your feedback on these recommendations. Isn't it better to have the money grow tax-free right now? Our income level doesn't allow us to contribute to a Roth, although my company does offer a Roth 401 401k in addition to the standard 401k. We'll be 51 years old this year. I'm a fairly new listener, so I'm not sure if you've covered these topics before and appreciate any info you can to share. Thank you. Actually, you know, we, we've skirted around this, but let's hit this straight on. Probably about 800 episodes, so I'm pretty sure we've covered this before. <laughs> we've, but, we've, yeah, but don't go back through them all. But don't try to find it because I, I, I wouldn't know where the hell to look. No, no, especially since we cover about five different topics an episode. So, uh, Lisa, let's tackle this for you. OG, what do you think? The only reason that I would invest outside of the retirement plan after the company match and before the maximum would be if there was a goal precipitating needing the money prior to age 59 and a half. So you're 51 right now. If you said, I want to retire in three years, how do I get money out of my retirement accounts from 53 or 54 to 60? then you'd have to have money outside of that or pay taxes or God forbid a penalty. So I'd want to make sure that we thought about the cash flow of that in that regard. If you're thinking, Hey, I'm 51, I'm going to retire when I'm 65. I've got 15 years. Uh, I don't know why you wouldn't put it in your retirement plan. The only other asterisk I guess would be if for whatever reason, the fund options in your plan were so atrocious, people get wrapped up in this. Like it's crazy. Like my fund allocations are point seven. God, we talked about this. Oh, I hate it. You know, instead of the Vanguard is this, it's like, I'm talking about the fund fees are 3% and there are six funds and they're all international small cap value. And you're like, I just, I can't, I can't diversify in here. The returns suck because, you know, then yes, you should invest outside your 401k. If I would also tell your... <laughs> HR people that they're going to get sued by the Department of Labor for not following right. the fiduciary <laughs> guidelines. But, you know, so, you know, so most of the time these companies are cognizant of that, have at least a broader allocation. So I don't know why you wouldn't put in your 401k. I like the tax deferral. The pre-tax versus Roth option is a matter of personal situation. You know, so there's that. But even without the matching contribution, if you're in a high enough tax bracket, if you say you make too much money, that means your adjusted gross income is over 200000 So if you're putting 15% of 200000 it's thirty grand. That knocks your 
AGI down by 30 grand saves you $6,000 in taxes, give or take, I guess. Normally, Seems like a good deal to me. N- normally, I would say there was a, you know, when I first started reading this, I thought Lisa's advisor has a commission incentive. That, that's what I thought. I was like, oh, well, yeah, he said invest $6,000 a year with me. Well, that makes sense. But then he basically says any robo-advisor, target date account at Fidelity, yeah. Vanguard, or the like. So, which yeah. means that there's not target date funds suck. So, never in a million years. Yeah, but there's still- you don't you don't have an advisor if you're if you, if if you're talking to a finance person and their solution is don't invest with me, don't invest in your 401k, and go find a target, a date, target date fund at another company. You have a really <laughs> advisor. <laughs> you have somebody out there who doesn't like you. Well, but there is a there is a good thing here though, which is asking why. Because if you ask why, ask the advisor why, then you can get the answer. And that's what we don't know. We don't know the why, which I love your first answer to this question, OG, which is if you want to retire before 59 and a half. And maybe Lisa and her husband have all their money in spots that make it difficult to get money pre-59 yeah, and a half, and have, they haven't done that got- yet. If you're looking at your investment account, your your net worth statement, you're like, well, I've got, you know, my house is paid off. That's worth four hundred thousand. I've got uh, two small four hundred one ks. That's worth uh, three million. And then I have uh, nothing else. Okay, maybe it's time to have the something else. And that maybe is what the air quote advisor is talking about. But um, on the face, I, I I don't see why you wouldn't put the money in your retirement plan. And why fifteen percent? Why not just max it out? Yeah. I mean if you make if you, if you make too much money for a Roth, you're at 200 grand. 15% is $15,000 a person. So you evenly each make 100,000. That's 15 grand. Just put the other four, max it out. Max it. People get stuck on this 15 number also because of our friend from Tennessee who just says you got to save 15% of your income for retirement. Again, well some people need to save 20% of their money for retirement. Max it. retire. You know, challenge yourself. Do it. another eight grand in there. Do it. Actually, another eight grand. Hell, you could do another ten thousand with the catch up. You're over fifty. So we dare you, Lisa. We dare do you. It. Do, do it. Double do it. Dare it. You. Double dog dare you. Everybody's doing it. <gasps> Triple dog dare. <laughs> Thanks for the question. Hey, you know what? My coffee cup is empty. OG. So I think it's time for us to step aside. Coffee cup. We got uh, that crazy, crazy man, Doug, waiting in the wings. So. uh Let's let's move on to our trivia. Hey there, trivia fans. I'm Joe Spawn's neighbor, Doug, and let's talk financial teams, shall we? I mean, like every year, the wolves of Wall Street are really strong, but this year I'm really pulling for the Silicon Valley Vipers. Hey, what's that? Oh, oh. Okay, I probably should just stick to the script. Let's see here. Let's talk financial. Oh, terms. Let's talk financial terms, not teams. Okay, well, this week, some big banks are sharing their first quarter's earnings reports. What's an earnings report? Well, that's the quarterly report where public companies share how well they performed the previous three months. These reports, along with a company's annual report digging deeper into a company's numbers, help investors choose which companies to invest in and shares with current shareholders how their money's performing. None of that is today's trivia question, though. I'm just showing off all this crazy huge knowledge in my brain cavity. Here's the real humdinger, though. With big banks sharing their numbers, which bank looks in the mirror and sees that it's the biggest bank of all in the USA? 
I'll be back with the answer in just a moment. It's so amazing. I thought that I had shirts that fit really, really, really well until I was introduced to proper cloth. And what's very interesting to me is how easy it was to get those dress shirts. You know what I can't stand? I just don't, I just don't like the whole idea of going into the store, getting measured. Now, what's cool is I've done that before and I'd rely on some of those measurements, but the proper cloth website made it super easy for me to input my measurements. And then when I got my shirt back, the first one fit better than any of the shirts that I've received from people who actually measured me in person. Not sure how, not sure why. Maybe it's magic. Proper cloth is magic. I don't know. That'd be a cool ad, but it probably isn't magic. Proper cloth makes it easy for men to buy dress shirts that fit perfectly without setting foot in a store and without paying a fortune. While most bespoke shirts take months to ship, Proper Cloth delivers your custom clothes in less than two weeks. Now, what happens is your first order, they'll send you the first one to make sure that it fits. They're not going to make a bunch of shirts that don't fit. So once they know that first shirt fits, then they send you the second one or the rest of your order. Head to propercloth.com slash SB, answer a few short questions, and easily get the perfect shirt for your body thanks to their custom size prediction technology. GQ sums up Proper Cloth properly. You could get a dress shirt and have it tailored, but why not buy one made to measure from the comfort of your couch, or in our case, comfort of your mom's basement? How come they don't have that in the piece here? I don't know. Plus, they offer a proper fit guarantee, giving you a free remake if your shirt doesn't fit. So you'll get $20 off your first custom shirt at propercloth.com slash SB. Head to propercloth.com slash SB for 20 bucks off. $20 off just because you listened to the show. You're welcome. Hey there, trivia nerds. I'm Joe's mom's neighbor, Doug, back with your thrilling trivia answer. The question was this, with lots of big banks declaring earnings this week, which U.S. bank is the biggest of them all? While Bank of America and Citigroup are good choices, they're numbers two and three respectively. Why? Who is it? None other than J.P. Morgan Chase, that's the biggest, weighing in at just over $2.6 billion in assets as of September 30th last year. You know, that's a decent sum, I suppose, but I think I'd rather just have the million dollars. I mean, can you see trying to carry around all that money in your wallet? I don't got time for that. See ya! Hey, let's throw out the Haven Lifeline and tackle one of life's most important questions. Our friends at Haven Life Insurance Agency, they put what you value first And we've been asking our community what they value first in our Facebook group. You want to hang out with us on Facebook. It's uh, stackybenjamins.com forward slash basement gets you to our basement group of stackers. Our friend Cosette says Taco Tuesdays and Bogo Margaritas. What's better than that? I would submit nothing. Trigo Margaritas. You're a big fan of Taco Tuesdays. Mm. And of course, the margaritas, it isn't even optional. I find that margaritas get really slippery. Like the first one's like, oh, this is really good. And then after a while, you're like, there's a lot of sugar in this. And then after a while, you're like, there's a lot of tequila in this. <laughs> in Texarkana Zapatas, they, were, they would look you in the eye and they'd say, you know why you like our margaritas? 
And we go, no, but they're wonderful. They'd say, because we put more alcohol in ours. Like they seriously, that was their game. Uh, Cheryl would always have the first margarita. Fantastic. It would go down smooth. And then the second one, she'd regret halfway through because she's having trouble getting up from the tables. Like, whoa, hey, shouldn't have. A little wobbly. Yeah. yeah. A little wobbly. But uh, but Taco Tuesdays. Yes. Uh, Our question. actually. Our question today comes to us from uh, Reggie. Let's throw out the lifeline. Reggie. Hey, Reggie. How you doing, OG and Joe? What's up? I have a lot of respect for you guys. Still waiting to learn something from you, though. I have a question about Betterment and Wealthfront. Just listening to an episode right now, and I heard OG saying that he really doesn't like it. I have my money spread out through various things. Vanguard, ETFs, S&P 500. I have a triplex. I have my 401k at my job that I match. But I also have a bulk of my money into Wealthfront. Just because the ease of it all. I remember reading something about it, and I thought it was really good. So I just want to know your opinion on what don't you like about it and what I should do to the rest of my money. I probably have north of sixty to seventy thousand dollars saved into wealth run and betterment. Thank you. Thanks for the question, Reggie. And uh Robo Advisors, OG. What's not it's not yeah, it's not about the robo, it's not about the trading, it's not about the asset allocation. It's about the behavior. And I'm not sure that Wealthfront has ever done anything like this. Somebody can look it up. So I don't have as direct experience with that. But I can tell you that just the behavior that they demonstrate in other areas makes me not want to do business with them or recommend anybody to do business with them. So a couple of things. Firstly, for being a online brokerage account, setup, all that sort of stuff, it is damn near impossible to get your money out of it. And what I mean by that is if you want to transfer from one brokerage, from Betterment to another brokerage company, you want to move your money to Vanguard, you want to move your money to Fidelity, whatever, it is very, very, very difficult. Every other firm that we do business with, super easy. You sign a form, it's digital, it happens in two days, it's done. The last time we tried, now maybe it changed it, the last time we tried to transfer accounts, it required a wet signature, meaning you had to sign it. And then you had to mail the form to New York City. And then sometime about six weeks later, they got around to transferring it. That, from a technology standpoint, is like doing business in 1985. If you have an IRA that has a balance greater than 250000 and you want to transfer it, you need a medallion signature guarantee, which, for those of you who don't know what that is, it's like finding a needle in a haystack in your city. There's probably, in a city like Texarkana, one medallion signature guarantee person, maybe. In a city like Dallas, there might be 25 or maybe 50 people who are able to do this. Most of the time, you have to have some sort of prior relationship with them. The whole idea of a medallion guarantee is that it's another layer of security. So instead of just being a notary, it's a little bit higher thing. So it just makes it very impossible to do business with. And then the last thing that just totally turned me off was two and a half years ago with the Brexit situation when they summarily decided, yeah, we're not going to let you trade today. Now, I get that from a behavior standpoint in terms of being an advisor and saying, you know, I'm going to get in your way because you want to freak out and I'm not going to let you do that. But they're not a fiduciary investment advisory firm. It's a brokerage house that holds money and processes trades. So for them to summarily say on Friday at two o'clock, yeah, we're not going to let you trade anymore today. 
or we're not going to let you take money out or we're not going to let you do this. And then the answer was, yeah, because we didn't want you to do it. To me, that is so out of bounds. It's ridiculous. And then the last thing was, and I don't remember if this is, was this Wealthfront or Betterment where they created the new fund? Wealthfront. There you go. So they created the new fund, automatically put everybody at 20% into it. Forgot to casually mention that the new fund cost three times as much as the old fund did and automatically put everybody in. You know, just that kind of, that shady stuff just sits really badly with me. You know, I don't have a lot of grace for that sort of stuff. I think they market largely to the wrong people. I feel like they market to people a lot of the time just starting out or starting to build their portfolio. And a lot of the cool stuff that they have, some of the tax loss harvesting that a lot of do-it-yourself investors don't do, or the more technical stuff. I was going to say that stuff has been proven to be wildly inaccurate and not actually done correctly. SEC just fined one of these people a whole bunch of money because they said, oh, yeah, we do all this tax loss harvesting. And then they didn't actually do it. But without even getting into that, the fact that they say that they do that. And then don't do it. but somebody starting out doesn't even need that. I mean, somebody just sure. beginning doesn't need that. And they, they so they're marketing to these people that they do that. And then the second thing is, I think for somebody who's a brand new investor, it's, it's a lot of, you know, I mean, modern portfolio theory, as you know, I think is cool being on the efficient frontier, I think is awesome. A brand new investor needing a portfolio as diversified as a, as a betterment tries to be. I'm not really on board with that. Why you're spending money, you know, so many of our listeners are so, you know, we hear fee, 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 fee. Well, I'm not paying for that. I'm not paying for that. And then they'll blindly go, oh yeah, betterment. I'll pay for all this crap that they don't do right. They don't, they don't need. Um, I don't get it. I don't, I don't understand it. I guess my answer ultimately is that it kind of comes down to a couple of different things. I find them to be very terribly tough to do business with. And it's a brilliant business model, right? We're going to get your money here and make it very difficult for you to leave. (laughs) If I was going to start a business, that's how I would do it. But then don't call yourself a technology company if you're not going to embrace the generally accepted technology practices of every other firm in the country, uh, in the world. And then the arbitrary, you know, today we're not going to let you do this because we don't feel like it thing. And the fee, you know, the, the random increase in costs I just don't see how these companies turn out to be profitable. I guess we'll see as the market goes and as time goes on, but I can't see how well, you're seeing the VC funding, you're seeing the how, merging. how they keep on running. You're seeing the merging. I mean, Wealthfront coming out with new, new products, uh, Betterment working more and more on the advisory channel, trying to, to work with more advisors. You're seeing the merging that I think a lot of people have predicted OG since the beginning. Yeah. Thanks for the question, Reggie. You got a question for the show. Head to stackybenjamins.com forward slash voicemail. And uh, Reggie, out of all the people we answered today, Reggie's the one taking home the swag. Greatest money show on earth. T-shirt. swag bag. Heading to Reggie. Love that shirt. Let's dig back into the written mailbag, however. And we have a letter here from Alex. Alex says, hey, Joe and OG, my wife and I just found out we're expecting. This is something we've been planning So I've had a long list of financial to-dos ready for this moment. I'm hoping you can help me figure out if all these things are necessary as I've gathered them from multiple sources over the years. You can hear Alex's excitement. That's awesome, man. 
Uh, the list I have is this increase our life insurance currently two years. Let's talk about that. Increase, two years of what? I think it's, it, it must be two times salary is what he's talking about. Oh, okay. So somewhere in the neighborhood of the next 24 months, my family gets to be okay. And then what? What do you do with your two-year-old? Well, he knows. He's saying this is his list. He needs to jack that oh, up. Oh, it, it's from two. Okay. <laughs> yeah. More like 25 times. But the answer is yes. So that's good. Yes. Good. good. Big yes. number. Yes. Whatever number you're thinking, put a zero on the end. Do that. Haven life, whatever. Get that done. Purchase long-term disability insurance. Yes. Probably should be a group benefit. If not, you have to shop for it. Yep. But even if it is a group benefit, what and I- And you should shop for it. Yeah. What I found is start off with the amount of money you'll need and then work backward. Get as much of it from the group as you can and then mm -hmm. go outside for the rest. But yes, absolutely. Purchase umbrella insurance. Yes. It's mm -hmm. unrelated to having a child. Yeah. It's not expensive. I think our umbrella policy is $3 million for 200 bucks a year. But I would wonder what you would need it for. The reason we bought it was because we added a pool in our backyard. Yeah. I would just but, do I it mean, anyway. We just didn't. I would do it yeah. anyway. I would, yeah. I would have the umbrella. Sure. Okay. Set up a 529 plan for school. Yes. I'd wait until your kid's born for that one. It's more of a, you go back to like ease of operation. You could say, but I can change the beneficiaries. Yeah, I know you can, but you know how big of a pain in the that is? And you have to do it. That's the other thing. Like you have to actually set it up. Then you have to fill out the forms. None of this stuff is done online. Well, some of them are now, thankfully, but most of this you have to do with paperwork and notaries and stuff. So I wouldn't start the 529 until baby's born and you get the social. You can start saving for college now and then just sure. move that Lump money. Sum. Yes. Yeah. Yes. So set up an account and uh, save it, save yeah. it, save it there. Only if your retirement's on track. Set up recoverable. He says recoverable living trust, revocable, he means. Mm -hmm. But yes, set up a will. Estate planning. Yep. Set up durable General power of attorney planning. for finances, durable power of attorney for healthcare. Yes. All your estate plan. That should be done regardless of whether or not you have children. Uh, he says, background about us. We're in our late 20s. Both make over 100,000. Max out our 401ks. Have a six-month emergency fund set up. And good, have good. about 25,000 starting to get saved for a house that we're hoping to buy in 2021 for what it's worth. I actually did learn something from the show once. I realized lightning doesn't often strike twice. But here goes nothing. I think from my- good list. Yeah, from my mind, he's covered it, man. Can you think of anything? Set up uh, appropriate amounts of time for your in-laws to visit in advance. And don't let them be open-ended. <laughs> Make sure you know when they're leaving. Yeah. yeah. That sounds very personal. Circle, you circle it on the calendar. Like, what's the purple circle on April 13th mean? You're like, oh, nothing. It's a reminder. Why is there a notation here that says, Dad, get my life back? <laughs> what does that things, mean? Things become less expensive starting now. That's it. Nice job, Alex. Good, good work. We got time here. Uh, we're yeah, gonna... kids are cool. I love my kids. We're... Yes. I mean, I'm not saving anything for them, but <laughs> I made absolutely no changes in my life because of them, but I like them. They're pretty cool. Every time, every time they sit down for dinner, you remind them that you have no life insurance and they better be nice to you. <laughs> better be nice. Better hope things work out, kids. As long as I'm alive. You as can long keep as I'm alive, live, you guys get to keep eating. <laughs> Otherwise, remember, anything bad happens to me.
Our last uh, note today comes to us from Skippy. Skippy says, I want to teach my kids age eight and 10 how to invest and the Mm -hmm. power of compound interest. Ideally, I'd open Vanguard accounts for both and have them buy ETFs with birthday Christmas money, but I'm scared this will negatively affect how they qualify for financial aid for college. What should I do? Great question there, Skippy. What do you think, man? I think that you are overplaying the amount of money your kids are going to get for their birthday and Christmas. Unless, of course, you get a whole bunch of money for birthday and Christmas. If your kids have 1500 bucks in a brokerage account by the time they turn 18, um, yes, it will affect their financial aid ability. No, it will not detrimentally affect it. Still, opening uh, parents are charged less. You know, I think of financial aid and your assets as a tax, meaning when you fill out the forms for the expected family contribution form, a form called the FAFSA form, there are assets that you have that are taxed differently and assets in a kid's name are taxed much more heavily than assessed assessed. Yeah. Then the money in your name. So here's a way around that Skippy. I think what I might do set up an account in your name with each individual kid is the beneficiary of that account. And then that ends up being your money, which is still going to count against them for financial aid later, but at a much lower rate. I disagree with that uh, by a factor of one million thousand percent. Why is I that? Would, again, Bring it. never leave Bring my. It. I would never leave my kids as a beneficiary at eight and ten. But if you're setting up the account in their name anyway, you're saying go ahead and set up the account in in, in their name. Then it's their cash. You can't for a kid. It's a it's a custodial account, so you can name a contingent custodial owner. If you list them as a beneficiary and you get hit by a bus then your freaking eight-year-old has to talk to the court about whether or not he can take money out to go buy a gumball. Then set up the trust as the owner. Okay. I mean, set up the trust as the owner of the account with the trust and as a beneficiary. Here's what I would do. I'm just giving him a quick question. He asked me the question. He asked us the question. It doesn't say OG. I'm pretty sure he meant to just ask me because here's what I would recommend. Bring it. I'd like to see you argue with this one. I love stockpile. The thing that he started out with was, I want to teach my kids about investing and compounding, but I'm afraid of this. Well, what do you want to do? Do you want to teach your kids about investing or do you want to teach your kids about the FAFSA? If you want to teach them about investing and compounding, I'm assuming you're doing it with relatively small sums. Now, maybe grandma and grandpa give your kids freaking $30,000 a year every year and that's awesome. That's a whole different thing. If you're talking about like, what do I do with hundred bucks every so often. I love the app stockpile. And here's the reason why it gives the kids the brand in which they're doing business with, as opposed to saying, let's go buy Microsoft stock. They see, I want to buy Xbox instead of buying Kellogg's. They see, I want to buy pop tarts because they're like, Oh, I know pop tarts. And I use that as when, you know, when they get the dividends and they have $52 in Microsoft stock you buy fractional shares and they get 16 cents of dividends. I show them, Hey, here you just, your money just made money and it's not a lot of money, but it made some money. And next time it'll make a little bit more money. I think my kids have between 600 and 1200 bucks in their stockpile accounts. And I feel like that's a worthwhile trade off against the fact that at some point in time, somebody somewhere may assess them a higher contribution amount from that, you know, in terms of their college costs. 
It's like somebody may look at that and go, of that thousand or fifteen hundred, you need to pay three hundred more towards college. That's not going to make or break it in my book. So that's what I would do, which is the correct answer versus what Joe said. You just go ahead and uh, say, "Hey, you're not getting financial aid. Live with it." <laughs> Again, I think of we're talking about a few hundred bucks. You get in the ten thousand. Skippy plus didn't range, say a, a specific amount of money. Maybe Skippy's more generous with with uh, their kids than you are. I'm not. I don't give them anything. This is stuff they get from grandma and grandpa. That's what it's I'm, like fifty bucks. That's what I'm saying. Well, but you don't know that they don't say an amount of money here. I'm. So I'm. Let's work everyone with... is like me, Joe. Everyone <laughs> does things exactly the way that I do them. Thanks End for the of discussion. Thanks for the question, Skippy. If you've got a question for the show, head to uh, stackybenjamins.com at the top of the page. You will see uh, questions for the show link. Click that link, and you'll see all the ways that you can interface with us. That's going to do it for today, kids. Guess what? We're back with another show two days from now. Amazing. And I think the last thing before we turn this, turn this over to Doug is if you're looking for good financial help in your corner, OG and his team are taking clients. The first step in that journey is to go to stackybenjamins.com forward slash OG. All right. Time for us to say goodbye. Doug, take it from your man. What should we have learned today? Joe? I got it. I got this one. I promise this time I'll stick to the script. So what did we learn today? First, investing in a 401k. Remember that even if your employer doesn't have a match, that's just icing on the cake. Wait a minute. Wouldn't the match be for the candles on the cake, not the ice? Okay. All right. Okay. All right. Fine. The fact that you're tax sheltering your money is gift number one. If you need a pre-tax option, For most people, the 401k is the only place you make that investment. So unless the choices are amazingly horrible, it beats investing anywhere outside of your retirement account. And it's easier. Second, and on the topic of taxes, are you worried about your tax strategy overall? First, worry about when you'll need the money. By beginning with when you'll take funds out, you'll make better decisions about which tax shelter fits your goals. But the big lesson, Joe's right about that argument over investment choices in the first headline. Invest in what excites you. Wait, did Joe write this? Oh, shit, I should have known. It's the only way he can win an argument. Special thanks to Joe Jimenez for joining us today. We'll catch up with him again a little further into his Continental Divide hike. This show was created by Joe Salcihai, produced by Richie Rutter-Reese, and engineered by the amazing Steve Stewart. Online, visit us on Twitter at at SBenjamin'sCast or on our Facebook page. I'm Joe's mom's neighbor, Doug, and I'm pretty much the guy in charge of everything around here. Trust me, this well-oiled machine didn't get like this all by itself. SB Podcasts may receive payment on the show from sponsors and guests in the form of books, giveaway items, discounts, or other remuneration. There's no way you would take advice from these dorks, but like Joe's mom always says, don't take advice from people you don't know. This show is for entertainment purposes only, and before making any financial moves, consult with a real financial advisor. Does anybody else spend hours wondering what Kenny Loggins is doing on any given Tuesday morning? 
Oh, no, that's just me. Hey, I was just looking, OG, at this uh, hilarious article about what, who's... Okay, he just finished doing the credits. Doug's already in his car on the way home, and uh, and he's calling us. Oh, boy. Hey, dude. We're in the middle of uh, recording a show. Okay, then you didn't need to pick up unless you want me on. Well, w- well, you are on. Oh, who are you on with before I start swearing and making an ass out of myself? Who do I record shows with? Well, I don't I mean, it could be uh, money in the morning. I don't know. Could be a guest that you're interviewing. It's Mr. OG. Oh, that joker. So in other words, you're going to be like another three hours before you get any usable content. Nice. He just said nice. He can hear you, but you can't hear him. I know, which is really the way I like it. Actually, I, I wish I could just have a mute setting for half the people in my life. He would be first on the list. <laughs> just taking it. I'm just taking it like a. He said he's. He said he's just taking it like a man. Yes. <laughs> the most valuable thing I've gotten from OG is his phrase. Can you email me the rest of this story? That's pretty high quality stuff. You've stolen that and used it about 57 times, haven't you? And never once credited him. I have to never admit, once given him attribution. I have to admit I've done exactly the same. Right. Exactly I mean, everybody has a purpose on this planet. He used his up early. All these letters we're answering from from listeners right now, and the thing we're all going to remember at OG's funeral was the line. His, yes. his The reason they're going to put a statue to him in the middle of his downtown is, can you email me the rest of that story? Tell me that wouldn't be the greatest thing to print on a headstone in any cemetery anywhere <laughs> the, the greatest eulogy ever that's all it and should as, say as my good friend it wouldn't would even say, have his name on it it would just say can you email me the rest of the story right away you'd be like that guy is a rock star i don't know who this is under there but that guy has stones like nobody else has <laughs> gravestones i don't know there's a joke there somewhere somewhere we didn't find it but that was good anyway glad you made the show man Okay, I had a real question for you, but we'll cover that later. All right, deal. See ya. Bye. Becoming a member at Navy Federal Credit Union can help you earn more and save more. Their certificate options could earn you more than standard savings accounts with competitive rates. Not all financial institutions offer you as many choices for savings options as Navy Federal does. For example, you could start your savings journey with a low minimum deposit, add money at any time, and watch your savings grow. Thanks to flexible terms, you can use Navy Federal's savings options for all kinds of goals, short or long term. Considering a big home improvement project, maybe you want to consolidate debt. Well, if you're thinking consolidation, that's part of your plan. You could borrow up to 100% of your home's equity with a fixed rate home equity loan 
with zero closing cost or easily borrow as you go with a home equity line of credit. What I like, you make your plan first and then you use the appropriate instrument to get you there. And Navy Federal has them. Both options could help make life's big expenses seem more manageable. To learn more, visit NavyFederal.org at Navy Federal. Our members are the mission. Navy Federal is insured by NCUA. Equal housing lender. Membership required. Terms and conditions apply. Loan subject to approval.